The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about that hole in your memory before the earliest one you can produce, uh, also known as infantile amnesia. And hey, listeners, you were promised uh, you would be getting some some baby looked at me topics this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife and I had a baby this past October, and I think many of you have been practically daring me to uh, embark on I- indulgent dad topics. But here here we've arrived at one because uh so so uh, I think the way I got here was recently we have started spending a lot of time trying to make a five-month-old baby laugh. Uh, Rob, I, I don't know how much experience you have with this, like the the parent-comedian routine. Oh, yeah, yeah. A uh, yeah, lot, lot of hours clocked on that particular stand-up gig. Well, sometime recently, uh, Rachel figured out what our baby's favorite genre of comedy was, at least for that day. And it was a textile gravity comedy. It was the the uh, act was you hold a cloth up in the air and then you drop the cloth on the baby. And when the cloth falls down and hits the baby, this is hilarious. It was uh, creating these storms of laughter from another dimension. Uh, truly riveting experience, at least for us. But uh, I started to wonder, like, why is this funny? And of course, I wanted to ask her, but she's a five-month-old baby, not talking yet. She can't explain why it's funny. And, I, you know, I was thinking, one day, will I be able to ask her, you remember when we were dropping the cloth on you and you thought this was so funny? Why was it funny? What was going through your mind? But I just know that's probably never a conversation that's going to go anywhere because is she really going to even remember this by the time she can talk about it? Uh, because I certainly don't have any memories uh, that I can bring up now 
from being five months old or even from being one year old or even from being two years old. I'm not sure, honestly, what my earliest memory is, but I know I don't have any memories I feel confident about from the first several years of my life. And it turns out this is not unique to me. This is pretty common. Most people feel this way, that they don't have any really solid memories from the first several years of their lives. And so I just got really interested in the question of why that is. Yeah. I mean, unless your biological mother partook of the waters of life uh, <laughs> while she was pregnant, you're probably not uh, pre-born like that. You're, you're not going to, you're not going to remember these things. Um, and we'll get into some, there is a certain amount of, um, subjectiveness to all of this. And we'll get into some of that. And and certainly we'd love to hear from any listeners out there who are firm on this or, or feel firm on this and are like, yes, I do remember uh, being under the age of two, that sort of thing. Uh, but most of the, the research seems to point in a different direction, that most, it seems like most of what we remember is after a certain point in our development. And that certainly your, your daughter has not quite reached that point. Which is not to say that she is not capable of memory, uh, mm -hmm. because, I mean, several things I can notice. She recognizes faces and she is forming associations and routines. There's learning going on at this point in a baby's development and learning is to some extent based on memory. So it's not that the brain is not capable of any type of memory at this point, but it seems that most people's brains at this point uh, are not producing episodic or autobiographical memories, episodic memories, meaning memories of specific events or experiences, uh, not producing sort of narrative memories of that type that can be retrieved later in life. I guess it's a question whether memories of that type are formed at all. Uh, and I, so I don't have any memories like that from infancy. Most people report the same uh, and I cannot honestly, from my memory, tell you a story about anything that happened before I was probably like four or five or so. Uh, you, you do bring up the idea that there are a small number of people who claim they can remember like being born or being a baby. But even in those cases, while you can't, you know, say, well, you're just wrong, you don't remember that. I think it's reasonable to be skeptical about whether those are real memories or just later confabulations. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, on this note, I think it's important to remind listeners that fabricated memories are by no means necessarily intentional. There are numerous ways that, and we've discussed this on the show before, numerous ways that false memories may be encoded. Uh, there are plenty of examples of cases where attested early childhood memories can, uh, can ultimately be attributed to stories one is told about one's younger years yeah. and or something formed out of, say, longing or desire for a certain framework. A lot of stuff like that out there. And again, we, as we've touched on many times before, like we alter memories every time we, we draw them out. Every time we get them out of the, the, the storage, we get our, our fingerprints all over them and we change them. And then ultimately the, the memories that are most dear to us, the ones that we, we pull out the most are the ones that are potentially the most altered. Right, because the form in which they are stored in memory is ultimately the form in which you rehearse them. You know, it's not a videotape. It is a, it's a constant sort of like rewriting over the same document. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and to your point though, it is kind of ironic that when you have a young child in the house like this for, uh, for parents, this is, or, or even, you know, other people in that, uh, that infant's life, uh, these are some of the dearest moments, you know, you're mm -hmm. experiencing these moments and you're like this, 
this is, you can feel it embedding. You can you know this is something you're never going to forget. And then on the other hand, you have a, at least a very strong suspicion that the child is not going to remember it the way that you remember it. Uh, and um, and uh, it's uh, it's so it's something that I know that we my wife and I talked a lot about with our son when he when he was uh, much younger. And sometimes my son will comment on this because when your child gets over, you're always like, well, do you remember this? Do you remember that? Or I remember when this happened, but I know you don't remember it. And uh, so there are a lot of conversations like that. And then sometimes we'll be on a trip and our son at this point, who's uh, almost 11, he'll comment like, oh, well, that baby's not even going to remember that vacation, uh, <laughs> seeing like, a, you know, another couple with an infant on a trip. Uh, uh, but but and it's, <laughs> might as you know, well not even take it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that's that's kind of the joke, right? Like, just yeah. go ahead and put your baby in a closet for a few years because they're not going to remember these expensive trips. But of course, you can't do that. It's not how it works. You have to have these moments and these trips. And and just because the baby's not recalling it the way an adult recalls something later doesn't mean that it's not, quote unquote, remembered. Right. Those I mean, those instead of say, having uh, autobiographical memories that can later be retrieved in narrative form. Instead, the effect of those experiences might be, say, structural impacts on the development of the brain. Right. There's a, a great quote that came up in a, a paper I'm going to source here in, in a bit, where they, they said something that, that, you know, is quite simple, but I think is important to keep in mind in this context and in memory context in general. The brain remembers what it needs to remember, you know, and and the, the memory demands on, say, a five-month-old baby or a one-year-old child, one-and-a-half-year-old child are different. Uh, and therefore, again, it's not, it's, it's nothing bad about not having, uh, not being able to recall when you were two or three or four or five. It's just, uh, it's just what your brain needed to do. And as we'll get into, there are different reasons for this. Yeah, so that's what we're going to be exploring in this series. Uh, questions like, why don't most people have specific autobiographical memories of being a baby. Do we have episodic memories of infancy which get like erased from the brain for some reason? Or do we never form episodic memories of baby life in the first place? Obviously, there's some kind of memory going on in, in very young childhood and infancy, but maybe it just like it doesn't have an episodic memory component. Maybe it can remember associations and images, uh, uh, but maybe not uh, like uh, sequences of events. Uh, or or maybe is there some weird third option like uh, we do form memories and they're not exactly erased later, but they're sort of fuzzy or hard to retrieve for some reason. Uh, that That's what got me really interested in this uh, this exploration today. But of course, I also got very interested in the question of before people could do experiments on this, they must have uh, observed childhood development firsthand and had all kinds of questions of this sort and probably come up with answers, whether or not those answers were accurate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, let's get a little bit into just sort of some of the history of this, some of the, some sort of pre-modern infant opinions and, and also a little bit of cultural variation. Um, I think one of the things to keep in mind about pre-modern and pre-scientific beliefs about infant memory is that a lot of it is going to come down to older beliefs about what human infants are and what they are not. Mm. And so this is all a mixture of things based on cultural tradition, uh, but but also based on observation. I think it goes without saying that that no matter what may have been ultimately recorded in literature, ancient people, uh, you know, they they would have applied different insights and different ideas to the experience of babies, but some things were obviously going to be the same. Babies evoke strong emotions in us. That's just part of the way we're hardwired. Uh, babies require a great deal of care. 
babies cry, baby is inherently can't communicate precisely, and uh, and also human memories of early childhood or the lack thereof would have been identical more or less to what we have now, or at least any differences are not going to be based merely on, say, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the timeline. Uh, and we'll get into some of that in a bit. Right. For example, I, I would really not say that the current characteristics of uh, of infantile amnesia or memory formation in very young children are, say, a result of the the Internet or some other kind of like technological context, especially because we know people have been in the more modern uh, era doing research on this going back more than 100 years. So uh, before a lot of the the sort of like communications and uh, and technology context we live in today, people were asking, hey, when are people's first memories and uh, and what do they remember about childhood? And the answers were largely the same as what we get when we ask that today. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't seem like there's any expectation that there's been significant variation in this aside from variation that occurs for uh, cultural reasons and so forth. But again, a lot of this is going to come down to how we think about babies. And it, it, again, it's, it's, it's interesting because on one hand, yes, we have this inherent draw towards our own young and to the young of our community. And, uh, but at the same time, you, know, you often hear people talk about older kids and you'll, and you'll hear them say, well, you remember what it was like when you were that age. You know, there's a certain relatability in that. But generally, they're not saying this about uh, infants or very young toddlers because by and large, we don't remember what it was it was like to be that age. We only remember the stories of what we were like at that age and so forth. Now, um, examining how people in ancient times, for example, thought about babies, um, and thinking about pre-modern and pre-scientific thinking into all of this, uh, we also have to take into account uh, infant mortality rates, which were often high in ancient times. And I realize that infant mortality is not uh, exactly a fun topic, uh, but some of the attitudes of the ancient world surrounding the nature of infants is more sharply expressed over the subject, uh, or so it seems. So uh, we are going to touch on it a little bit, at least in passing. Yeah, it's sort of unavoidable for for most of human history, for most people, just a major fact of life. Yeah. So uh, I looked at a few different sources about the understanding of infants in ancient Greek and ancient Rome. In uh, Childbirth and Infancy in Greek and Roman Antiquity from 2011, Author Varunek Dawson points out a number of interesting things about how these ancient peoples seems to have, seem to have considered young children based on the evidence we have to go on today. And so I want to outline some interesting points uh, that they bring up. First of all, most of what we know relates to elite children rather than the lives of those born into lower classes or to enslaved people. Also, we have to think about the terminology here. This is, this is fascinating. So, you know, basically the infant-toddler uh, dynamic. Um, and duality. Uh, it, it's, it's interesting and potentially telling in that changes in terminology may indicate changes in cultural understanding of young children. So, you know, it, certainly there's a difference between an infant and a, and a toddler, and we tend to sort of, uh, you know, we, we tend to mark that uh, transition point. But to what extent is that transition point borne out in a, a people's language? And at what point does the language potentially shift, et cetera? Basically, just sort of a larger background topic to keep in mind. But the big point here is that it's most helpful to think of childhood as a journey, one that hits different milestones, goes through different stages, uh, and that and this in turn alters the way that adults view the child and the degree to which they can be integrated into society. Also, um, Dawson points out, uh, quote, in times of high infant mortality, these stages represented steps of, for hope 
of survival and increasing parental bonding. And uh, we'll come back to exactly what is meant by that. But basically, it comes down to like, how does a culture deal with the fact that there is a high infant mortality rate? Is there more of a sort of pushing away uh, of kind of like a, a, a ultimately a stoic reaction, uh, sort of distancing of the infant from uh, the society or making it kind of a marginal state? Or is there indeed still a lot of bonding going on and so forth? Hmm. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old <laughs> Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Now, with the Greek and Roman viewpoint specifically, 
Uh, what we think of as infancy would have probably ended at age two or three with, uh, you know, full weaning, increased ability to speak, and at age three, integration into practiced religion, at least at some degree. Mm. Now, medically speaking, it was previously supposed that there was next to nothing in the literature of uh, ancient Greek and ancient Rome to suggest that physicians were concerned with babies, except in exceptional circumstances. It was thought that babies in general were left to the midwives and the mothers. However, Dawson stresses that this is no longer really a correct viewpoint based on numerous examples of writings that have come up about, say, essential diet and hygiene for babies. Uh, so uh, I think that's interesting, representing like a, a shift in our modern understanding about ancient views on infants. That they were actually sometimes a more relevant object of, uh, of what was considered medicine. Yeah, there's sort of this, uh, and, and we'll, we'll get into it more in just a second here, but the, um, there was this understanding of the ancient world based on, on some significant evidence that basically the, uh, the, the ruling male elite were saying like, babies, uh, don't, not even worth your time, not mm. worth my time anyway. Call me when it is old enough for me to care about it. Or if, there's a, if it's exploding, then yes, a physician may come in and check out the child, that sort of thing. Because without a doubt, there seemed to have been far less of a view of baby superiority in ancient Greek and ancient Rome. Um, Dawson writes the following. Uh, this, is, uh, this is great. Quote, from Hippocrates to late antiquity, babies and toddlers are defined as a category of beings with a special morphology and physiology. These characteristics are on the whole negative. <laughs> Newborn babies are generally described as imperfect, weak, and ugly. Wow, perfect. Yes. Uh, well, so, no, this reminds me of uh, the story you've shared many times of your son calling the cat uh, a stupid baby or just a baby, maybe, when it was yeah, being Yeah, just mean. baby. Like, baby is an adjective. Baby mochi. Uh, and, yeah. uh, and just a solid burn as a toddler. It's like peak insult. Imperfect, weak, and ugly. Yeah. Yeah. To see, I mean, toddlers get it. Uh, and, and so did the uh, the grown learned men. Of, uh, of, of ancient Greece. So Dawson points a few specific authors to underline these views. So um, Aristotle wrote that babies, uh, quote, are born in a more imperfect condition than any other perfected animal, and also that they have poor eyesight. Oh, well, it depends on what Aristotle means by that. I'm not sure of the full context, but if he's making a distinction between human beings and other animals, I think that's a a fair observation that human babies are more helpless than the newborns of most other animal species. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's what he's going for here. There is a, there's another work uh, on colors that is sometimes attributed to Aristotle. And in this, it's pointed out that babies are ugly because or well, it's I'm not sure it says ugly, but it points out <laughs> that there's essentially they're ugly because they have red faces and little hair. <laughs> You ever get the feeling that like Aristotle might have been writing about human babies the same way he was writing about like stingrays? <laughs> it's just like this is something he's observed a couple of times and made a few notes about. Yeah, I mean, I've seen some pretty hairy little babies before, so I mean, I, I think it varies. Yeah. Um, but yes, on the whole, they tend not to, I guess, have a, like a full head of hair or certainly a proper beard. Now, Galen was one of numerous physicians to comment on the seeming wax-like malleability and weakness of the baby. Um, <laughs> weakness of the baby. Babies yeah. are so weak. They're, they're weak, and they're, they're basically made out of wax. Like, if you don't handle them too much, or you will change their form completely. They do tend to be doughy. 
Yeah, that's true. But also, Galen, I can just tell this guy did not spend much time holding a baby because, like, especially Galen probably had a beard. I've got a beard. When when you feel the baby grab the beard and just not let go, this this is the handle for the adult, and it will pull until it has a fistful of beard hair. You do not walk away with the impression of how weak babies are. <laughs> Aristotle also recorded uh, that many babies die within the first week and are therefore not named uh, before this period passes. And th- this is a, a kind of approach to the first week or so of a child's life that you see uh, reflected in various cultures mm-hmm. uh, and various times. Meanwhile, Plutarch just wonders if babies are in fact animals because they're more <laughs> like vegetables. They're more like a plant. I mean, yeah, but uh, plants uh, cry at midnight. Uh, plants poop where they want to. That's exactly what a plant is. <laughs> uh, Dustin adds this uh, line here, quote, a mineral metaphor substitutes for the vegetal one in Kronos' myth who ate his children as soon as they were born and thought a stone to be a swaddled nursling. (laughs) So, you know, is it a baby? Is it a stone? Like anyone can tell the difference, I guess. Yeah. Is that supposed to be a comment on how, like, uh, how featureless and uninteresting babies are? Or is that myth supposed to be like a joke about Kronos being stupid? Um, I always, I mean, granted, I was, as a modern uh, English-speaking human. I'm not the um, the intended audience, I guess, for the the myth. But I always interpreted it as being like he's just so consumed with this this need to destroy his young, you know, that he's just like just gobbles them up without really tasting them, you know. Yeah, really he's more like a down. he's more machine now than man. Almost like a he's a baby eating machine. He barely notices or or has cognizance of what's going in his mouth. Yeah. So uh, after expressing some of these uh, again. Uh, uh, aristocratic male uh, opinions on on babies uh, recorded in the literature. I think it's a good time to stress something that um, another author drives home uh, as well. And this is uh, from the work of Maureen Carroll in Infant Death and Burial in Roman Italy from 2015. Um, she points out that we base a lot of our understanding of this topic on the writings of Stoic male aristocratic literary elite and also the arguments uh, that the remains uh, in Roman cemeteries seem to bear this out. The, um, I think, quote-unquote, invisibility of the young child in Roman cemeteries. Yeah, and unfortunately, this is true about uh, a lot of things in the ancient world. Uh, When you have to consult literary texts to get a flavor of ancient life, that's necessarily going to be leaving a lot of stuff out because of the sexism of, like, who could receive literary education and who was writing texts and stuff at the time. You're you're going to get a lot of aristocratic male perspective. Yeah, and and certainly when you factor in stoicism, uh, and then also the fact that maybe some of them did not know how much hair a baby had on the <laughs> on average. Uh, you know, it's a it's 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 well worth taking into account. Um, but uh, but on the other hand, you do have this this argument that uh, lines up with things uh, with the writings of, say, Plutarch, who said that infants, quote, have no part in earth or earthly things. And therefore, they don't require any of the rites normally performed for the dead. Um, so, you know, there's just kind of this. Um, push and pull over like what is the status of the of the infant and we can understand like this like stoic approach that's like look there's a a chance that that things aren't going to go well and then therefore one should be prepared for that by not fully integrating them into uh into life essentially um but carol points out that these views do not necessarily represent those of, of course other classes or certainly mothers during the time period 
Um, so the seeming invisibility of young children in Italian cemeteries of the time period is something that requires like further examination and uh, and perhaps a, a, a little more understanding as opposed to just like, well, they weren't considered real things. Also of note, I was looking at a paper from 2012, Child Exposure in the Roman Empire uh, by W.V. Harris, published in the Journal of Roman Studies, pointing out that child exposure, uh, like the leaving of a child you know, in, in the wild, um, or you know, out in the open, away from 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 humans, uh, that this was widely practiced in the Roman Empire, often when quote physical viability and legitimacy were in doubt, but that not everyone agreed with the practice. Stoics, in particular, tended to believe that infants should live at the very least if they're healthy and legitimate, uh, and certainly. There's plenty of room for hypocrisy in something like that. But I also wonder to what extent it backs up or counters the idea that babies in general were considered only halfway real. Uh, here's another great chunk going back to, from, from Dawson going back to, uh, to her paper. Quote, for Aristotle, infants were defined as a lower category of beings, physically weak, mentally and morally inept, with uncontrolled appetites. Physical disproportions associate them with animals. A heavy upper part explains why children move like quadrupeds, says Aristotle, quote, that is why infants cannot walk but crawl about, and at the very beginning cannot even crawl but remain where they are. <laughs> <laughs> but remain where they are. <laughs> Um, the, the, this paper from Dustin doesn't really get into memory all that much. A lot of it's, again, we're dealing more with sort of the overarching views of, of young children and infants. But uh, Dustin does touch on memory as well in this part. Quote, disproportions also explain mental incapacities. The heaviness of a large head impairs the impulses of thoughts and the infant's memory is bad. Children are further associated with inferior categories of human beings, such as old people, physically weaker, with a poorer memory and less hair, with the insane and the drunk, with a similar irritable temperament and a disorderly behavior, with women, irrational, changeable and weak, and even with dwarfs. So you ask, what did ancient Greek philosophers think about babies? And it's been, and the answer is just a conglomeration of offensive opinions. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, a lot of that is what seems to remain in, in the literature. Um, but Dasson also stresses that while a lot of this may just sound like, you know, babies are gross and the worst, there's also plenty of evidence that the seeming deficiencies of babies were also very much enjoyed. Uh, that that it wasn't just like, oh, man, this baby's like an old man. It's more like, oh, this baby's like an old man. Uh, and, the, mm. the, and the bonding still occurred it, even in times of high mortality. Their smiles and their skin were written about as being irresistible. And uh, also, I thought this was neat, quote, myths of baby heroes transcend children's deaths. And uh, this is something perhaps worth thinking about. I don't know, we might get into this in the second episode. We might come back at a later time. But you do have a lot of baby heroes and child gods and godlings in various uh, myth and folkloric traditions uh, from the likes of uh, baby Krishna to, to the Christ child. But anyway, sticking on the topic of memories or the lack thereof in small children and infants, it would seem that, um, you know, of course, the lack of memories from one's own infancy was very much a known factor and that it would make sense within a viewpoint that babies are unfinished and imperfect. Uh, they have yet to cross through all the stages of becoming truly human, becoming you know, truly a part of a family unit, truly a part of society even if they still amuse us and we, we still have a lot of emotions about them.
Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So... How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, we mentioned earlier cultural differences uh, that could impact just how early one remembers one's life, what, are, what one's earliest memories happen to be. And I was looking at an article titled The Culture of Memory by Leo Winterman, published by the American uh, Psychological Society back in 2005. The author here points to research that shows that, quote, the average age of first memories varies up to two years between different cultures. And it seems to come down to the weight and importance of memory within a specific cultural system. According to Michelle Leichtman, Ph.D., cited in the in the article, quote, people who grow up in societies that focus on individual personal history, like the United States or ones that focus on personal family history, like the Maori, 
will have different and often earlier childhood memories than people who grow up in cultures that, like many Asian cultures, value interdependence rather than personal autonomy. So a key 1994 study from psychologist Mary Mullen, published in the journal Cognition, asked more than 700 Caucasian and Asian or Asian-American undergrads to describe their earliest memory. On average, Asian and Asian-American student memories happened six months later. Uh, a subsequent study, and we should note there were many subsequent studies that, that examined um, different uh, slices of all this, uh, from, uh, in this case from Mullen, though, found a 16-month gap between Caucasian Americans and Native Koreans. These studies led to a host of, of others, and it seems to follow the basic social interaction model. Quote, according to this model, our autobiographical memories don't develop in a vacuum. Instead, as children, we encode our memories of events as we talk over those events with the adults in our life. The more those adults encourage us to spin an elaborate narrative tale, the more likely we are to remember details about the event later. This absolutely dovetails with much of what I've been reading that uh, that like sort of an interactive uh, rehearsal of memories helps make those memories stronger. But sort of the paradox of memory, and this is true not just of childhood, I think this is true of adult memory as well, Mm -hmm. is that while that produces a stronger uh, uh, memory consolidation and you you are better able to retrieve that memory later, it also makes the memory more subject to contamination by whatever input you're getting from the person you're rehearsing it with. Or even from outside sources such as advertising. Uh, I don't know if this is still the case, but many years ago I went to the Coca-Cola Museum here uh, in Atlanta with, uh, with my mother. And there was some bit of advertising. I'm not sure if it was current advertising or past advertising, but the gist of it was Coca-Cola. We've always been there. Like we we were a part of your essentially saying we were a part of all those memories that you hold dear, and and I I often think think of that when I encounter uh, branding from this company because I'm because it, it's good it's really in, infectious yeah uh, it does does a great job but it is it's, it is kind of like trying to worm its way in there like do you remember that uh, that great memory from your childhood I bet there was a Coca Cola on the table and even if there wasn't bam there is now. Well, you could say it's genius, maybe even insidious the way that they insinuate their branding into inherently nostalgic imagery. So like the Santa Claus with the Coca-Cola. Yeah, I think that's not an accident. That's like to try to integrate the brand with your earliest and best feelings from childhood. Oh, boy, Christmas is coming. Here's Santa. And what's Santa got in his hand? A Coke, of course. That's just (laughs) part of the Santa lore. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah. There's a, you could really get into to uh, into advertising and and so forth and all of this as well. But uh, but yeah. So even within a given culture, and they're going to have the sort of different cultural leanings based on what sort of emphasis you place on on individual um, experience. But also, there's going to be there are going to be differences even within a culture based on high elaborative and low elaborative mothers. Uh, and I take this to mean you could basically mean any person in the individual's life, but they're, they're using mother as the main example. So basically the question is, is a child routinely asked for detailed stories about their daily life or are they asked mostly closed questions? Mm. Uh, and, and this is interesting to think about. Like, yeah, is the is the child asked to like fully explain their day or is it just like, did you eat lunch today? Yes. Did you eat your snack? Yes. That sort of thing. And not to say either approach is better than the other. Uh, 
life is busy and sometimes you just got to make sure that your child ate a snack and you don't need the full story. <laughs> but it is interesting to think about like perhaps the, the necessity for that balance, you know, to, uh, to, to get uh, you know, a full account of what the day was like as opposed to just like, did you do the things that were acquired? Well, this also uh, connects to some things I was reading about how very young children can, in fact, answer questions about things that happened to them recently, or at least they typically can. This this has been studied. But one thing I was reading was that how well, say, I don't know, you know, a two and a half year old can describe a memory of a recent event depends very much on how you elicit the memory from them. And you might have seen parents doing this. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not at that stage yet in parenting, but I've seen other parents doing this kind of thing. It's like, um, what did we do on your birthday? You know, did we go somewhere? Where, where did we go? And mm-hmm. so you can kind of like talk the child through the memory in a way that it seems like the child may not be able to produce the details and connect them spontaneously. Did that make sense or was that? Yeah, yeah, no, no. It, it makes me think of other memory exercises um, where like if one is having uh, like the tip of the tongue scenario where uh, if someone is having if you're having difficulty um, uh, remembering a particular name or whatever, like it's better for your memory for you to keep trying to guess or mm. for the uh, person on the other end of the conversation to encourage you to guess and not to just give it to you. That sort of thing, like like uh, making the, the, the brain work for those details. That's true. That was a finding of that episode we did, wasn't it? That like you're more likely to remember the the detail you're searching for next time if somebody like gives you a hint and you make the connection yourself versus if you just look up the answer. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, in all this, I think it is important to, to mention something that Michelle uh, Leichman points out here, and that is, uh, again, that there's not a wrong direction in any of this. The brain remembers what, we, what it needs to remember. We remember what we need to remember. Social pressure contributes to this, uh, but it, it is what it is. Now, one question I thought we should look at uh, before we wrap things up today is like, okay, we we keep talking in, you know, uh, more general terms about like, well, there's an earlier period where most people can't really produce any memories uh, from that period of their lives and then a later period where they can. But what are the actual numbers? Like, when does that kick in? This is something that has been studied extensively. Uh, there are certainly different methods, and I think we might be able to add some nuance to this answer uh, later on. But it seems to me like the the uh, sort of magic age is like three to four years or about three and a half years is uh, is what most studies have converged on. Uh, and to be clear, also, when we talk about childhood amnesia in the scientific literature, it seems often to refer to two different things that are related. One is the loss of all memories, as far as we can tell, from before the earliest memory we can produce. And then the second thing is the relative scarcity of memories from the early years of childhood compared to equivalent spans of time from later in life. So, for example, even though you have some autobiographical memories uh, from ages six to seven, if you are like most people, you will have a fewer number of spontaneous memories that you can recall from that period than from, uh, say, 16 to 17. Hmm. 
And I thought it was also interesting to just look at the different experimental methods for trying to find out what people's earliest memories are. Uh, there, there, there are a number of ways to approach this. Sometimes it's done by, say, just asking people to describe their earliest memory and estimate at what age it took place. That is, of course, a, a perfectly good place to start. But putting aside for a moment the question of like the accuracy of these memories, you could imagine reasons why just asking somebody what is your earliest memory might not actually produce their earliest memory. For one thing, most people don't keep their memories indexed in a sortable form. You know, it's not mm -hmm. an Excel sheet that has a sort by column for date. And uh, so you may have a memory that occurs to you in one moment as the earliest you can remember. But how do you know in another circumstance you wouldn't think of an earlier one that just didn't occur to you at that time? Yeah, plus I guess it's worth... Um considering that in in many but but certainly not all cases you have you have sort of a stability to early childhood yeah. um certainly that is desired uh, that um that, that there that there would be sort of a sameness to a lot of the early memories you know it's like um mm -hmm. uh, you know one or both parents are there um perhaps the the immediate uh, physical surroundings are the same uh, so, like, what is going to be present in a memory to distinguish it and set it a apart in the timeline? Again, unless you go back later and then you are, you have encoded it and then you identify it maybe falsely and say, oh, well, this is a memory of, say, when we lived at this house or when we lived in this town. Yeah, and th that raises important questions about, like, the characteristics of what counts as a memory. Mm -hmm. Like, I wonder if there's a sort of boundary being established by the terms of the demand for recall. For example, an autobiographical memory needs to be something you can put into words and explain to somebody else. But uh, do you ever get that feeling that you're experiencing nostalgia, but it's not for a thing in the outside world, maybe for, not for an image or an event, but something that it isn't really something you can put into words. It's like nostalgia for an internal state or a feeling. It's kind of a strange thing. I sometimes have that, that sensation. Of course, when I have that feeling, it's totally possible the memory component of the, the sensation of nostalgia could be illusory. But sometimes I wonder if maybe feelings like that could be based in really old memories that, that can't be put into words or something. Yeah, I'm, I'm having trouble remembering um, a specific example of this, but I think some of my early memories definitely have this component to them. Even if I do remember like a basic setting or event mm -hmm. around them, there is like a there's there is at least as strong the feeling of what it meant. Like there's one particular early memory I have of like running around in circles in a living room around like a dinner, uh, like a dining room table uh, in a living room or a dining room that just seemed enormous, you know, like a cathedral. And uh, so part of it is like the, these vague memories of, of what this space looked like, but it's also equally met by the exhilaration that is remembered of just kind of like mm. this, you know, this running around. And it is hard to really explain like what that means, because if I were to run around in circles right now, it would certainly not be the same feeling, you know, it doesn't relate to other memories of physical exertion from other points in my life. Oh, but then to come back to other methods to study early memories, another one that seems to be used fairly often is uh, the word cue test. So th this one's pretty interesting. Um, I say a word to you and then I ask you to tell me a memory associated with this word, just any memory. Uh, we could try it right now, Rob. Uh, do you want to do it? Sure, let's do it. Okay, tell me a memory associated with the word jar. 
Oh, well, that's easy. I, I have an early memory of trying to get a jar of maraschino cherries out of the refrigerator by myself, and I dropped it and broke it or spilled it. I'm not sure if I broke it or spilled it, but uh, <laughs> that is a, a, a strong early memory of mine. Okay, and then from here in the experiment, I might ask you for some subsequent details like, uh, you know, who was there? Did anybody else witness this memory, et cetera, et cetera? And then I would also ask you, estimate what age you were when this memory happened. But what age do you think it was? Um, whew, I would say maybe, maybe three, but that's just a real, that's a, a, a huge guess. And I think I've actually asked my, my mother about this memory before. And, and, you know, this is the kind of thing where like kids have things like this happen all the time. They don't necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily something a parent is going to specifically remember. Uh, it makes more of an impact on the, the, the child than the parent. Mm-hmm. So I have no idea exactly when this occurred. Okay, but this is a good answer. Jar of cherries on the floor, maybe spilled, maybe broken. You think you were around three. So I keep doing this. I do this for a big list of words, uh, maybe with a big sample of people. And then you can sort of uh, cross-reference all of the answers you get to look at what ages the memories tend to come from. And uh, you could see by this method that I'm just making up random numbers here, but say by randomly associating memories with words, we end up with people telling us about 20% more memories from ages 16 to 20 than from ages uh, 6 to 10 or something. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a pretty clever method. But anyway, what this research tends to converge on is that a a really important time is roughly the age three to four or like three and a half. Generally, the earliest memories that adults can produce are around the ages of three to four. And there is not much or nothing from before that. And then after that, there is a gradual increase in the quantity of autobiographical memories from each year of age up until uh, maybe like seven or eight, when the autobiographical memory store starts to look more like that of the rest of adulthood. So for most people, looking backwards, memories tend to start around three or four, and then you get more of them at five, more of them at six, more of them at seven, more of them at eight, and then you start to reach a, a more more kind of complete adult memory set. Mm. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that children before the age of three or four produce no autobiographical memories. Instead, it seems like there may be a sort of period of forgetting. And I thought this was very uh, interesting. Just one study I wanted to mention quickly that that gets at this. Uh, It was published in the journal Memory in 2005 by Dana Van Abema and Patricia Bauer. And it's called Autobiographical Memory in Middle Childhood, Recollections of the Recent and Distant Past. Now, I was looking for the full text of the study, and I couldn't find it before we recorded today. But I did find a summary of the findings in a uh, in a Psychology Today article by an author named Vitelli. And basically what uh, happened in the study is that Children were interviewed about autobiographical events along with their mothers at the age of three, and they produced details about those events. So something they did, you know, a trip out to do something, and they could recall things about their own past. So they had some form of episodic memory. They could be prompted to retrieve details about these episodic memories. But those same children were brought back years later at ages seven, eight, and nine, exactly the range at which there seems to be a a profound forgetting of early childhood memories. So from uh, Vitelli's summary here, uh, the seven-year-olds could recall 60% of the same autobiographical events they recalled at three. 
but the eight and nine year olds could only recall 36 and 38 percent of events. Uh, Mm. So there seems to be a major drop off of memories from this earliest period around the ages of seven, eight and nine. Yeah, I think this kind of matches up with some stuff I've observed uh, with with my own son, mostly when in talking about things that we watch together when Mm -hmm. he was in like one age group versus another. Um, so, so, uh, and it, and it varies, I think from picture to picture, like there's some movies that maybe we've, we've talked about more, we've, that have become more like a sort of a, a regular part of one's life. And then there are other movies where you like watch it, forget it, and then maybe truly forget it and then come back and experience it again. Now, why patterns like this emerge is something I think we'll have to get into more when we come back in subsequent parts of the series. I'm not sure how many we're going to go to. We'll have at least one more part, maybe, maybe a couple more. Yeah, there's certainly going to be uh, plenty to get into for um, for a part two, possibly a part three. But uh, as, as we often have pointed out, we're we're hesitant to, to say this will definitely go to a certain number of episodes because uh, we're, we're often just a little unsure where we're going to cut it off. Well, how about you, Joe, as we, we close out this episode? What's what comes to mind as your earliest jar related memory? Jars only, please. And uh, if it uh, even if it's from the last five years, that's cool, too. Well, to bore you with dreadful cliche, I think <laughs> catching fireflies in a jar, uh, oh. that, that is very early. I'd, we did that a lot when I was a kid in our front yard. We had lots of them. Um, I think I also have uh, very early memories of pickle jars because I, I recall from early childhood being really into pickles, like pickled cucumbers, like a, like a Clausen's pickle jar. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, clearly I had more of, I guess, the sweet tooth as a child. Yeah. Um, but my son has always been super into pickles uh, of all different varieties from the what are the little cornichons to the, mm-hmm. the, the big dill pickles to the big uh, bread and butter pickles to the slices, all of it. Though with uh, both of those, I guess those are just sort of like uh, ambiguous, continuous states of childhood. Catching fireflies in jars, it's just something that happened often. I don't remember a particular instance of it. Same with uh, admiring the pickle jar and wanting its contents. <laughs> um, if, I, if I had to produce a more, um, I don't know, a direct autobiographical specific memory, it'd probably be a more recent one. Uh, I don't remember if you, I think you asked me for my earliest, but if I were just doing the word cue test, I'd probably say, oh, from when I was 35 and I made uh, and I made kimchi in a large jar on my table and I remember how it smelled and all that. Oh, nice. Well, you know, I think it's it's worth telling everyone, like, go out now and create some positive jar based memories with your, with your children. <laughs> Even if they're grown now, uh, it's never too late to create a jar-based memory. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to go and close up this episode, but we'll be back uh, with more on this topic. And in the meantime, certainly write in with your thoughts on all of this. And yeah, if you want to share some of your, your earliest memories with us and sort of attempt to define when these memories occurred and if you have any, if you've been able to dig around and ask other people to sort of uh, prove them out. Uh, to see if they are, in fact, largely authentic or if they've been augmented in any way. Uh, yeah, uh, we'd love to hear from everyone uh, throughout these episodes. Uh, but this is going to produce a skewed sample because we're going to hear from everybody who's like, I can remember being one, but people aren't going <laughs> to write in to tell us I don't remember being one. <laughs> no, right. You can write in with that if you're like, my earliest memory is being, uh, you know, five or, or, or older, whatever. Like, yeah. like, write in. Like we said, there is no wrong answer here. The people who claim to remember being born 
it doesn't mean their brain is better. Their memory is 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 better than another individual. Uh, again, we're going to continue to discuss this as as we uh, as we explore this topic. No wrong answers. All right. Uh, yeah. So we close it out. We'll just remind you that core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind published on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. On Mondays, we do listener mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short form monster fact or artifact episode. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film. And uh, oh, and, and this week, I think it's going to be a, a pretty fun one that will tie in with uh, early childhood memories for many people, because I think we do form a lot of uh, early childhood memories based on movies we're exposed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so perhaps we'll get into that a little bit as we discuss this week's title. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.